You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Additional support is provided by Gnarly Nutrition, fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. And by Loa Boots, crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. And PolarTech, bringing you the science of fabric. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal. The AHA has been covering skiing in various forms ever since it started publishing in 1929. In the last few years, we've stepped up our reporting of inspiring first descents on major peaks. Two names keep surfacing in our pages, Tiffaine Duperrier and her skiing partner Boris Langenstein, both from France. In 2018, they made the first ski descent of the complete northwest face of Lila Peak in Pakistan. This stunning face drops nearly a vertical mile at a consistent 50 degrees or steeper in the upper half. In 2019, it was the first descent of Spantic and a nearly complete descent of Nanga Parbat. After COVID, they returned to Pakistan in 2021 and did five first descents, also climbing several new routes during their way up these mountains. But Tifen had never been to North America until the spring of 2022. In May, she flew to Alaska with Boris to act on a crazy dream, a ski descent of the Cassine Ridge on Denali. The two quickly saw this wouldn't be possible, maybe because of a dry Alaska season this year. Maybe it's not possible at all. But an alternate vision soon appeared, a massive descent on the southwest face of Denali, starting just to skiers right of the upper Cassine, followed by a long, terrifying traverse to join the West Rib route. They continued down the West Rib all the way to Camp 1 on the Cahiltna, a total descent of more than 12,500 feet, or 3,800 meters. Their descent on May 31st is the subject of this bonus episode of The Cutting Edge, featuring Tifen. Our interviewer is Brody Levin, himself a professional ski mountaineer with first descents and exploratory missions all over the world. He's been a skiing advisor to the AAJ for the past few years, and he serves on the board of directors of the American Alpine Club. So here's Tiffen and Brody talking about skiing on a truly epic scale. The American Alpine Journal has been recording noteworthy ski descents, traverses, and accomplishments as a service to climbers and skiers for years. As a ski mountaineer, I consistently refer to AAJ editions, both old and new, for inspiration, ideas, and creative approaches to projects. Now that I'm volunteering with the American Alpine Club and the American Alpine Journal, it's fantastic to see the AAJ excited to further incorporate ski mountaineering into the book's annual offerings. 
Today, thanks to the wonders of the internet from my home in Salt Lake City, I'm speaking with someone who has been contributing much of that as of recently. French mountain guide, ski patroller, ski mountaineer, and total hero of mine, Tiffen Duperrier. Thanks for joining the AAJ today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to finally be speaking with you. We originally tried to connect when you were in Kathmandu, and then again when you were in Istanbul, and this has all happened in like the last three days. Where are you now? I'm at home, finally. I finally reached the base camp in uh, next to Val d'Isère in the French Alps. You are, of course, a very accomplished ski mountaineer, and you work as a UIAGM, IFMGA guide in the north of France. But I'm interested in the fact that you have another job. How does that work? Yeah, I'm also a ski patrol, so for almost 15 years now in, uh, in Val d'Isère also. Thank you for continuing to contribute to the American Alpine Journal over the last few years, primarily through your incredible ski descents. And today, I'm super excited to be talking to you about the one that I found particularly interesting for our listeners in North America, because it's a place that so many folks have either visited or want to visit. I think it's so cool that you finally made a trip to climb and ski Denali. Yes, thank you, thank you. It was a, it was kind of a thing because I was thinking of it since uh, since a very long time actually, and uh, we were lucky to uh, to find like kind of a nice condition. So you and I are talking at the very end of 2022, and you were there just this past summer with Boris Langenstein. Just the two of you, right? Yeah, yeah, just the two of us. We usually work like this. We are just a a team of two, usually. Very cool. You've told me you've been thinking about Denali for a long time. When you think about Denali, is it simply thinking about climbing and skiing it because it's the highest peak in North America? Or have you been thinking specifically about this visionary line that you and Boris found and ultimately ended up skiing? No, I was thinking about this line in particular. When you arrived in Alaska, though, your plan was to consider climbing and skiing the famous Cassine Ridge, which has never been skied. I don't know why, but the the, the Cassin, I had it in mind for a long time also, and I've looked at it and I always thought, it. I think it's skiable. Having a look on it, <laughs> unfortunately, it was not. It was a surprise, and in the same day, same time, it was not because the the, the Cassine it, it's first firstly uh, an alpine route, so it's a bit ambitious to go there and uh, and thinking about skiing it from top to bottom. But this year, I guess it was super dry, and I don't know. Maybe with more snow, it can be uh, good. I don't know. So you decided from the air that you wouldn't ski it. What did that mean for you and Boris going forward? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like uh I think we were we didn't talk about this like uh directly in the airplane but we both thought ah, it's maybe not going to happen this year. And uh the closer we we get and the closer we thought ah, no, this is not uh this is not going to to happen. 
explain how you did end up finding the route that you found on the southwest face. Did you find it from the air or from the ground? From the ground. From from the ground because from Camp One, it's you. You have a nice view on the southwest face. It's not really hard to uh, to see it, and you can like picture it really easily, and then look at the the photo on the camera and uh, and decide like 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 this. So no, it was more from from the ground. Of course, Andreas Franzen skied the south face solo, the first and only person to do so in 2011. You knew about that. When you looked up at that face from the glacier, did you see his line and think, I want to repeat that? Did you see his line and then see a variation of it? Or were you looking up at a mountain and seeing something entirely new, knowing that that is what you and Boris wanted to ski? I just saw something totally new. Really, because because I like... uh ski closer from the Cassine, it was something that I thought we both really wanted to do that and not to ski the south face because also the logistic is a bit more complicated because you don't end up at the same place than uh, where we because we we did the normal route to get to the top so if you leave all your gear on the normal route and if you end at the bottom of the south face, like uh, Fredrickson did. Like, uh, you don't have... it Log- Logistically, it was a bit too hard for a team of two. When you did decide to finally commit to the southwest face, where did you plan to have that deposit you on the glacier at the bottom of the line? It puts you back on the north northeast fork glacier. And then you just have to uh, to ski uh, gently to the camp one, and it's and it makes it easier, and also uh, it makes it lo- logical, because from the top to the bottom, it's just one one ski descent. Like you don't you don't have a stop, or you don't have to uh, you don't have to break somewhere because you're in the wrong valley or or something. Was making sense for me. Excellent. And was this your first time skiing in Alaska? Yes, yes. It was my first time and also my first time in America. Hey, how nice. So, hey, <laughs> that, <laughs> that was a, a nice uh, discovery for me this year. And you you heard of, of Alaska since you're a little kid when you're a skier. And you always want to go there. So why did you finally decide that this was the year to go to Alaska for the first time? Uh, it was uh, last year when we were on the, on the Gesherbrum 2 in Pakistan. We always think about our plan for the next year, like uh, at the end of the expedition, the previous expedition. We always do like this. And uh, we thought, oh, next year we want to we go... Uh, in two different places, and uh, Denali seems like a, a simple thing to organize. Not too much uh, planning with uh, agency and permits. It's easier to organize compared to the Himalaya. I ask this question because you work as a UIAGM guide. Was this a fun trip or was this a work trip? It was a fun trip. It's, it's uh, actually our holidays. Since you spend all year guiding and patrolling, how do you separate 
fun from work. I think a lot of professional athletes have both the blessing and the curse of sometimes being unable to separate what they're doing for fun from what they're doing for work. Have you found a certain balance? I think um, over the year, no, it's it's kind of a it's it's a repeat nearly every year. We want to go on a spring expedition and a fall expedition every every year, but uh, it's not always happening. But at least we are doing one expedition each year now, and it's I I don't know I don't have any logical re- reason to explain that, but. It's it's like this. I go on a trip with my friend boys, and uh, we have the same uh, goals, I guess. And our goals is to ski big mountains. When you arrived in Alaska, what did you think about the whole experience, getting there, landing on the glacier, and of course the whole thing with pulling the sleds that most people haul up and down the Kahiltna in order to have the supplies needed to climb and ski Denali. What did you think about the sleds? Mm, pulling the sleds it was a uh, it was not a fun time for me because uh <laughs> Boris uh, already went to Alaska in 2016 and he and he told me oh you will see Alaska it's so good because you go to the supermarket before going on the glacier and then we can have a nice lunch and nice dinner with a uh, like I don't know cheese pasta everything bacon and eggs and so you put all of this in your sled, and, <laughs> and uh, it was too heavy at the end. Really, really too much weight for me. But but we did have nice dinner. And nice <laughs> when you landed, how heavy was your sled? Ah, uh, forty-five. <laughs> forty-five, and it was like full of uh, ketchup, cheese, uh, eggs, and and all of those things in the big pan, bigger. Uh, too heavy. And for the Americans listening, we're talking 45 kilograms or 100 pounds of food and gear. Did you ultimately make the mistake that I believe a lot of first-time Alaska range skiers make, which is to bring some type of food that simply does not work on the glacier? Yes, yes, I think. (laughs) What did you bring? Bread, uh, tortilla, eggs, like jam. Ketchup, a full entire uh, bottle of ketchup, hummus. <laughs> I know my first time on an expedition in Alaska, which was also to Denali, like nearly a decade ago. I brought a giant tub of cream cheese and bagels, and as soon as I landed on the glacier, the tub of cream yeah. cheese instantly froze into like a giant, worthless heavy cream cheese ice cube thing and it stayed that way until i flew off the glacier nearly a month later and i never got a single bite of it it was just kind of something that i lugged around the glacier for a few weeks (laughs) yes yes it was it was pretty much that but at the end you know you you know how to handle uh frozen eggs and uh it works right (laughs) I would love to hear about your experience flying onto the glacier, landing at 7,000 feet on the lower Cahiltna, all the way up to advanced base camp at 14,000 feet. Can you walk us through that experience for you? Yeah. Yeah, so it's all new. you. You get to that, uh, to that airport, and, and then uh, it's, it's really well organized. 
like you you get your stuff then you go on the airplane we were with a tourist it was a tourist flight so we had the chance to do a big loop around the denali we saw the north face and uh, what is the behind the denali it's the big forest we on the north face it's the it's yukon Ah, yeah, you're looking north toward the tundra and beyond that into the forests of Denali National Park and Wonder Lake, and it's such a beautiful area. Yeah, so it was, for a French, for French people, it's really impressive because you, it's so big, it, you don't have uh, villages or roads or you don't have anything, it's just uh, nature, like, it's a, it was just a big flight and into this impressive uh, wilderness and and then when you land that's cool also because it also well uh, organized with the the chief of the base camp i don't know it was a uh, gabby and so oh. she explained her uh, she explained us uh, where where we have to bury our stuff like the the cash for the food and uh, getting ready to skin up to Camp One, it was something because uh, we we needed to unpack everything, like to to <laughs> to decide if we take all the food we bought or if we leave some stuff and then coming back. And uh, and then you start uh, at uh, nearly two <laughs> two p.m. <laughs> And and you yeah you start lo- your trip like this like not really knowing what you're doing with uh, all of the ketchup that you have in your sled and uh, and it's too hot to walk and uh, and it's flat <laughs> at the beginning <laughs> and uh, no it was cool it was a a great first day I was a bit surprised <laughs> yeah it'd be pretty hard for anyone to land on a glacier in Alaska for the first time ever and not be pretty surprised let alone having a goal in mind as massive as yours and it's pretty cool that you can start walking at 2 p.m and still make it to your first camp without even using a headlamp because you have 24 hours of daylight in alaska in the summertime where did you find yourself camping that first night and how many more days did it take you to get to fourteen thousand foot camp um so first uh so first night it was uh at camp one and so at this place for me it was a it it's it's a good place to stay because you really have a good view on the denali subway space and so it was the whole uh, the whole point of this expedition it's to have a, a good view on this then we had one day we didn't stay at we stayed just a lower uh just a bit lower of the Kalhitna pass if i'm correct yeah, we just stayed there for one night, and then so it, and then one day to get to fourteen uh, to the fourteen camp. So you made it from the landing strip to fourteen camp in three days. Is that right? Yeah, in three days. Yeah, yeah. I will remind our listeners that this is particularly fast, as most folks going to climb Denali typically take upwards of a week to reach 14,000 feet from where they land at 7,000 feet. So you were clearly feeling good at that point. But once you arrived at 14,000 feet, did you feel like maybe you had rushed? Were you tired? Were you maybe feeling the elevation? Mm, 
the the elevation not so much but tired from the from the jet lag things uh okay of course <laughs> you weren't tired from dragging a hundred pound sled for seven <laughs> miles you were just tired from the 10 hour time difference between alaska and france of but course it was a yeah but i i guess it was a bit too fast between landing in uh, america and then straight to 14 uh camp i think we did it in a in a short time and uh arrive here at 14 camp i was a bit uh a bit destroyed <laughs> yeah this is what separates you from the rest of us you were at 14 camp like five days after landing on a continent you have never even visited before exactly so it was a bit too fast i i guess <laughs> yeah but boris uh was in pakistan just coming to just before coming to alaska so he he was up to uh five thousand meter and uh he was a bit uh acclimatized. ah so he but was I feeling was good not... and acclimatized yeah. did he share some of that with you <laughs> no no but that was you know he's He's my teammate, and I really trust him. So I just think, yeah, if he thinks that I can make it, I just oh, let's see. Did you and Boris stash any gear at the mouth of the Northeast Fork on your way up the glacier? Uh, no, at first we didn't leave anything uh, apart from a bit of food in a cache. But we took everything. We we had uh, two tents, and uh, and we just brought everything to a 14 camp because we didn't know uh, really what was going to happen. We didn't know the, the condition and if the, the Seattle ramp was, was good and uh, we didn't know all of this. Mm, let's explore this approach a little more. You're sitting in your camp at 14,000 feet in a small village of climbers and skiers and rangers. Do you take a few days to eat, to rest, maybe just to fight your jet lag? Or, being Tifen and Boris, did you just start climbing? We we did start climbing. We did. Uh, so we arrived, and the day after, we go up to the camp, camp four. Huh? Camp, yes. The camp at 17,000 feet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we did that, and then we skied. I think it's the Messner. So did you sleep at the 17,000 foot camp or did you just traverse into and then ski the lower Messner couloir from there? No, 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 no. We just uh, went up and skied down and uh, have, a, have a night uh, at camp 14. But, and the day after we had one day rest and the next day we went up to the summit. <laughs> So again, at this point, you are maybe on day seven of being in the United States and yep. you have already skied the lower Messner Kular and now you are standing on the summit of Denali. Yes, yes it's right. <laughs> no, but I, was, I can tell you that the first, uh, the first trip to the summit, it was, for me, it was Diana. I was really not acclimatized and... Uh, and I've really pushed myself to get to the top. Uh, I I was a uh, wow. I was really destroyed, like feeling nearly like a uh, seven thousand and five meters. I was I was feeling the same there. Wow, seven thousand meters. Even though you were only around six thousand meters at that point. Yes, I was really really tired. <laughs> 
When you skied the lower Messner the day after arriving to 14 camp, did you not go all the way to the summit? You just traversed into it from 17,000 feet, right? Yes, exact. And yeah, we just started from the camp four. And what conditions did you find in the Messner? It's known to frequently be icy, that's for sure. Uh, that was that was pretty good. Pretty good, good snow, uh, a bit icy at the bottom, but the first part, it was uh, was really nice. A bit crusty, I can say. So now, day seven, you are standing on the summit of Denali. And what is your plan to do? What do you do from there? From there, we decided we, we had in mind to ski the, um, ah, the Orient Express. So this is what we did after. Just uh, after the top, we went to the to the entry of the Orient Express and we skied it to to Camp Fourteen, and, that, and it was a really nice ski, also, really really good. Uh, yeah, good snow for the for the height. It was a uh, good snow. And which couloir did you enjoy skiing more? Orient, I guess. Orient. It's it's longer and it's yeah. You are between rocks and. And you have a good view also on the on the west rib. You have a nicer view. When you were standing on the summit and skiing the Orient, how did that inform the rest of your expedition? From there, were you able to look down on the southwest face that you wanted to ski? Were you able to look down on the Seattle ramp when you got near the bottom of the Orient? How did that help you with what you ended up doing throughout the rest of this trip, with what you were really there to do? It, it it really helped us uh, because when we were uh, when you go up to the to the top, you just go by the the end of the Cassin, so you can have a look on uh, just the entry and see if there is if you can see like a, a line or uh, if you can see if the snow is good or not. So according to to that, for us the first part would be good would be uh it was in a good con- good condition and i'm really curious tifen this was your first time ever on denali near the top of the mountain it's kind of like round it is not a very pointy summit at all and so i want to know when you were standing up there on the football field and pig hill and in that general area was it easy for you to orient yourself toward the southwest face and the line that you had found in your photo and looking at from camp one Or did you find yourself looking down the south face and the southwest face a little confused about where you intended to ski for your primary objective, the southwest face? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was really clear for for us because the the end of the of the Cassine, it's 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 obvious you can't really miss it. It's uh, it's a good start for uh, for a ski descent. It's a good, uh, good place. Uh, It's easy to remember. Very cool. And so you skied the Orient Express and you found yourself back at the bustling 14 camp with lots of people and lots of guided parties and the whole deal. What happened next? What happened next? So it was it was a bit difficult because we knew that we wanted to do this uh, this line on the southwest face, but we we added we needed to um, arrange it to make uh, to make it works with a good lo- logistic, and for that we don't wanted to end up at the bottom of the mountain without uh, like without sleeping bags without a stove and all those stuff 
I'm glad you're talking about this because when I heard that someone skied the Southwest face, the first thing I thought about, honestly, was where the heck did they leave their sleeping bags and tents and how did it work logistically? Yeah. <laughs> so thinking uh, about all of this, we thought it's it would be good for us to have one camp set at 14 uh, camp and one camp, camp set at uh, camp one. So we decided to go down with nearly everything, just leaving the small tent at Camp 14. And uh, we set up uh, the the camp at Camp 1, and uh, just we just left food, tents, uh, like gas, and all those, all those stuff. So you took all of your food and your main tent and everything all the way from 14 Camp back to Camp 1? Yes, yes, it's it's correct. We just left uh, at Camp 14. We just left maybe uh, three three dehydrated um, dehydrated uh, meals, and uh, and that's it. Was it hard to convince yourself to carry all of that stuff, equipment that you had just carried up there, back down with you? I ask that because. Most folks who have been on Denali with skis will tell you that it is not much fun skiing downhill, towing one of those loaded, heavy sleds behind them. I mean, I think it's the reason that most people try to pawn off most of their food to other people on the glacier before heading back to base camp. And you were carrying a sled that still had two weeks of food in it, right? Yes, yes, that's it. <laughs> and, and, and it was a bit of shame because the snow was super nice these days. And it was colder, so with the sled on the on the shoulder, no, it was not funny. But no, it was part of the plan. It was a uh, and, and now when I look back at it, uh, yes, it was a good idea. So you said goodbye to Camp Fourteen, put everything back in your sled, even though you had only arrived two or three days before that and skied down to camp one at maybe 7,800 feet. And you built another camp there with everything you carried down with you. Yes. Yes, that's it. And, and then from, but before going down to camp one, we had, uh, we had one day rest, uh, one day to, uh, to acclimatize more, to have a night more up there. And, uh, so we were uh, kind of uh, a bit, uh, fresh when we went down. Tifen and Boris had seen the entry to their line from above and studied the route from below. But there was one major question they couldn't answer. Would there be enough snow to ski across the crucial traverse directly above the steepest wall of Denali's southwest face? After a short break, we'll hear all about it. Born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, Gnarly Nutrition is committed to fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. Gnarly provides honest, effective, and great-tasting nutrition that is third-party tested. Gnarly's full line features science-backed products free of hormones, GMOs, proprietary blends, or anything artificial. Add Gnarly Nutrition to your training regime to help you send. Use code AAC20 for 20% off site-wide at gonarly.com. Loa Boots began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village and still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and lightweight trail shoes, 
Loa is recognized worldwide for the uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make Loa boots simply more. Harness, check. Chalk bag, check. Grid fleece, check. For over 30 years, climbers have checked their gear lists to make sure they packed Polar Tech. We love Polar Tech fabrics for their lightweight warmth, quick drying performance, and ease of movement. Found in iconic apparel pieces of legendary outdoor players, Polar Tech remains an essential piece of climbing equipment. You probably have one in your closet right now. Whether you wear your pullover or use it as a pillow, Polar Tech helps bring a bit of comfort to the crag. Polar Tech is the science of fabric. And so you had a day of rest at 14, then you go down to 7,800, you set up another camp, you're looking up the northeast fork of the Cahiltna, which has a great view of the southwest face of Denali, and you're staring at it, and you're thinking, we can do this. Yes, yes, this is what we thought, but we've still that uh, question mark for for the travelers, because we were thinking, it can't be just snow there. We were sure to find uh, ice and uh, and hard condition, but we could see some some really like patch of snow, so we were confident, but still a bit uh, how can I say um, yeah not really trustful. I mean, you could have been staring up at the mountain, and that actually could have been ice on the southwest face instead of snow, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you have binoculars to look at it? No, no, we didn't have binoculars, but we uh, we have a really nice camera, so it's easy to take picture and to zoom in. Okay, and so you were doing that, and you decided, okay, it looks good enough for us to at least try. Yeah, yeah, correct, yeah. Then take me from there. How did it go? From there, it was pretty nice because we met up with some French that just uh, attempt to go to the uh, to the start of the Cassine via the forest glacier and they tried they tried to cross the forest glacier and they, and they told us wow it's uh, it's a bit messy uh, a lot of crevasses like huge uh, huge holes and uh, really hard to cross but you with your ski on the way down it will be easier and uh, apparently we they told us uh, you can do it, so it was a good point to know uh, to have this in mind. We knew also that if we ski down all the way, we can also go up again and get get back to Camp Fourteen, where where we had a tent also. And you would do that by climbing the Seattle ramp. That's your backup option. Yeah, exactly. And then, so we stayed at uh, Camp One for one day, having a good rest, and then up, go back to uh, Camp Fourteen from Camp One. And when you were standing at Camp One, looking at the southwest face, did you think that maybe you could ski the Cassine at that point, or you knew there was no chance and that was off limits for you? Yeah, no, no, we knew that that we we it yeah. It was a uh, no chance to ski the the, the casino. It was totally dry, and uh, we knew that the the cowboy uh, cowboy arrête was uh, was not uh, doable. Okay, now take us from Camp One back up the mountain with you. You have light bags. You are only planning on being gone for forty eight hours or so. How does that work? Yeah, it went well because we already summited once, 
So acclimatize this time, really fine. And so we go up. We started, uh, I think, around the uh, around six. You mean from fourteen camp, yeah. not from camp one, right? Yeah, yeah, not from camp one. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, when we started from camp one, it was just a yeah single day, light, easy. Like uh, we didn't start very early, and uh, we just uh, arrived there, and we had this tent, and uh, we are just carrying uh, the sleeping bags and the mattress. So you have two sleeping bags from camp one to fourteen camp, and then when you go from there, you only take one with you. No, we take uh, two. Ah, okay. And what else did you have in your bags from 14? From 14, we have a yes, sleeping bag mattress, stove, uh, some uh, dehydrated food, and uh, and that's it. Because you were expecting to be back at Camp 1 that night, right? That sounds so wild. We we didn't know. I think uh, I think when we were there, we we thought we couldn't really make it, but with the endless uh, daylight, it's uh, it's super cool. And what technical gear do you and Boris have with you? So technical gears, we have one rope, we have some uh, some cam, uh, like a ice screw, like some in, and that's it, pr- pretty much. Two high sacks, two really good high sacks, not light. Ah, like you have two proper ice tools per person. Yeah. yeah. And what are each of you skiing on? We are skiing on the Volkerski. Uh, it's rise of rise up. Yes, no, rise above uh, eighty-eight. Eighty-eight underfoot. Yeah, eighty-eight underfoot. And you have warm jackets and down pants and overboots to keep you warm. Yes, that's it. Yes. So I mean, your bags were light compared to your first trip up the mountains, but your bags are not light by any means. You still have a lot of stuff with you. But because you are kind of taking this as a day trip from 14 to the summit and back to Camp 1, you don't need an entire camp with you. So your bags are lighter. Yeah, no, you don't you don't need uh, you don't need a, a shelter or a tarp or a, a, a tent. Uh, and, and also, if you go on on this uh, on this plan, you need to make choice and uh and the choice there was uh, to be light, light, but also with a kind of a, a backup things in case. Like, for example, a small stove and the dehydrated food that you had. Yeah. I just think this is so cool, Tifen. Like the fact that you went from camp one to 14 and then the next day to the summit and back to camp one. I just think that is so rad. I'm really excited to hear how you made it from 14 to the top and back down. <laughs> so from... From fourteen to, to to the camp, it was a uh, ah first first uh, first thing. It was easy that day because uh, no wind, like sunny. Not uh, it was cold, but not too much. And uh, the day goes on. It's uh, you know it's it's a normal route, so there is nothing to really worry about. You don't have to make the track, so it makes it really uh really nice and we arrived at the top at 2 2 p.m so and uh and from there like a short break and then uh, we put the skis on to go down so maybe eight hours to climb from 14 to the summit a little over six thousand vertical feet yeah yeah something like this and you were standing on the top and you knew exactly where you needed to drop into your line 
Yes, yes. Yeah, it was it was a good feeling. And when we did the first turn uh, at the at the end of the casino, like uh, we already we already uh, we see directly that the snow was perfect and really easy to ski. And uh, we saw the line, we saw the the couloir that you can see from the bottom. We uh, directly spot spot it, and uh, and then it's it was a uh, yeah. We skied right uh, right side of the casino. We we are not exactly on the on the alpine on the alpine route, but maybe uh, one hundred uh, meters uh, on the right side. And you were on the skier's right side, which is why you could see it from Camp One. Yeah, correct. It's pretty awesome that you got to ski part of the line that you actually originally came to Alaska to ski, even if you didn't get to do the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually you drop kind of away from the casino, and that's when the traverse starts, right? Yeah, correct. So when you, when you finish this first, this first part, you don't have any uh, any choice because like just below you, you have this uh, huge uh, serac and a huge cliff that you don't want to drop. So it's a, it's a must-make move to traverse at, at this point. And this is where it got worse because we had a... It was a bit su- surprising because we thought it was snow, but it wasn't. It was hard snow. And just underneath, maybe uh, less than one centimeter, we, we had ice, like very hard ice. I'm looking at the picture right now of this traverse on the southwest face, and you are over a lot of exposure yeah. between a bunch of crevasses and then a giant serac and then a massive cliff below you. Mm-hmm. And you are just on the edges of your skis traversing over all of it, but you're not yeah. on snow, you're on ice. Yes, yes. And, uh, and, and that was, a uh, it was, I think, the first time that, uh, that, uh, that I uh, I got scared like being uh, skiing s- steep skiing is kind of a solo but you're two you're a, you're a team but you are so- soloing and at this point like Boris was uh, just in front of me he started to traverse and I saw him like stopping and say wow fuck it's it's ice and we it was, you know, you you have your pose in your hands, and you really want to switch from your pose to the ice axe because uh, otherwise it's uh, it's too exposed to ski uh, without your ice axe. Is your ice axe on your shoulder or is it in your backpack? Yeah, no, no, it's on it's on the shoulder, but just one, and we needed the two. It's the first time of my life that I don't ski with my two poses, but I we skied with a. Uh, Two ice sacks. <laughs> and that made you feel better because <laughs> for those who haven't seen the photograph, you are not traversing a short distance. It's maybe like half a kilometer or even a horizontal kilometer of traversing. I think I've calculated it and uh, it was 800 meters, nearly a kilometer. You aren't really even making turns. You are literally just on the right edges of your skis traversing on ice with an ice axe in each hand. Yes. Yes, correct. Yeah, I mean, I know when I look at the image of the ski line, I almost see two ski lines linked by a traverse. But now that I know the traverse was so technical, it is definitely part of the ski descent, maybe even the crux of the ski descent. Yes. Yeah, it's a huge it was the key of the of the ski descent. 
because uh, when when Boris uh, changed the pose to the ice axe, like if he couldn't make it, it was uh, at some point we thought we might have to take off the skis and put back the crampons. And if you had to do that, put your crampons on, were you going to go back to the casino and climb up? Or were you just going to finish the traverse with your crampons on? You, you traverse. You traverse because you, you have your, your camp at Camp 1 and the camp at Camp 14. So it would have been a bit stupid to, uh, to go back on a place where you don't have any uh, gear to stay for, for a night. But also uh, doing this for a skier, it's uh, like it's the last thing you want to do. You want to do it. Uh, you want to do it on ski. But we we had to to rope for uh, sixty meters. You were roped together for and sixty some, meters uh, of the traverse. I, yeah, yeah, we were roped together, two together, and uh, we we we've put some uh, some ice crew to to make it safe. So you're traversing across this giant ice slope, roped together, and you're placing protection as you went. Just for uh, just for sixty meters. Ah, ah, okay. And, and then we took off the the rope, and and we were uh, on our own. And then it returned to soloing with two ice axes on skis, and eventually you got across this eight hundred meter traverse. Yes. Were you relieved, or were you nervous about what was still ahead of below you? Wow. Re- really, re- relieved. Like uh, next level. I was a. Uh, Really not, uh, well, it's not a good feeling to have. Huh? Totally. And now you found more snow and you were no longer on ice because your aspect changed to slightly more south-facing. Exactly. Yeah. And, what did and you I find guess, there? Yeah, we, we found super hot snow, uh, spring snow at the time. I guess it was a uh, yeah it was super hard and so it's cool for for us there is no avalanche danger there is no ice danger and uh, so that was it that, that was it we knew we can uh, we knew we can make it uh, all the way to camp one since we we have done the traverse and uh, and also we we finished the ski descent in the in the chicken couloir and this was pretty cool. And the chicken couloir, for those who aren't familiar, is a couloir that is next to the Seattle ramp. It connects the West Rib cutoff, kind of above 14 camp, to the northeast fork of the Cahiltna, known as the Valley of Death. Yeah, that's right. It's a shortcut, huh? Yeah, gotcha. And so at the end of the traverse, that put you on top of the chicken couloir, and you were able to ski that down to the northeast fork. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was kind of a dream because... Uh, you ski this big, this big line. You do that shitty traverse, and then you head into a a nice, uh, a nice couloir like you are used to. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's it's beautiful there. That is so cool. Okay, and then take us from there back to Camp One. How did the chicken couloir and how did the Northeast Fork go for you and Boris? On the glacier, it was a. Uh, like uh, my friend, uh, my friend Pierrick, he he was right about it. But uh, we had to uh, to build a kind of a kicker to jump over uh, to jump over the crevasse. Wait, you actually had to build a kicker to jump over the crevasse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did he get across it without skis? But we had our skis. No, your friend. How did he cross it? Ah. 
But he didn't cross it. Ah, okay, that's what turned him around. Yeah, that turned him around, but but he but but he fought on skis on the way down. It's so when too- he told you you would be able to travel in the Northeast Fork because you had skis, he hadn't actually traveled all the way up the Northeast Fork yet. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. Okay, so you jumped over it, and then did you rope up for the rest of the Northeast Fork? Yeah, yeah, we we skied the Northeast Fork uh, just roped, which is very painful because uh, skiing uh, while you are roped with someone it's a uh, it's not a thing that I like. But it, but I think it's better on the Northeast Fork. It's a uh, it's a uh, man- mandatory, if I can say. I've always found it so wild that Andreas and others have skied out the Northeast Fork unroped. I haven't done it, but I just think it sounds so scary. Yes, and uh, it was the end of the day. It was nearly eight in the eight p.m. You're tired. the The snow was a uh, was. Uh, like the snow was uh, uh, how how do you say when the snow is like when the snow melts and it's too uh like it's it's wet ah it's slushy yeah slushy but if you take off the ski and you put your feet on the snow it uh, like uh, you go to the you sink yeah yeah you sink yeah <laughs> so you really need to be roped and so you started at 6 a.m. at camp 14 you were standing on the summit around 2 p.m. And then it took you like six hours to ski, traverse, ski the chicken coulard and ski out the Northeast Fork. Seven, seven, because we reached the camp one at uh, nine. So did you take skins with you to skin from the mouth of the Northeast Fork back to camp one? Yes, we had, uh, we had skins, but we didn't skin at the end because uh, it's pay- painful to put the skins back. So we just, uh, it was a cross country style. To get up to ah classic yeah. move you skied all day with skins even though you never actually yeah. used them <laughs> just some extra training weight that's all right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but skin it's always it can be useful huh? so you obviously slept comfortably at camp one because you had everything you needed when did you go back to camp 14 and did you do anything else did you finally rest so the day after uh, our ski lesson, we just had had a rest, and it was a, you know, it's a best day ever because uh, you just have done what you wanted to, and, and and you have an entire bottle of ketchup, maybe a giant cream cheese cube if you're me, and exactly you still have bread, you still have everything to uh, to feel good, and then after that uh, rest day, we went up back M14 pack everything and go down and fly home. How many days total were you on the glacier? Mm, let me think. I guess it was uh, 16 or something like this. So did you have like a ton of food left over at the end? Yeah, so much. <laughs> we took it uh, back with us and uh, we just left it at where we were staying. At, at at Talkitna. We have we have food, you know, in France like better food than in America, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but Yes, you do. <laughs> you and Boris have done so many, I think, noteworthy ski descents. What was your experience in Alaska like 
compared to your experiences in the Karakoram, in the Himalaya, in the Alps. Give us an idea of how this ranked for you among your other ski descents. The the feeling, to to be honest, it's it's a bit weird because I think it's the hardest uh, ski descent we've we've made, the longest for sure, and uh, technically, and also we were uh, we didn't climb into the into the route that we've skied down. So when you ski, you're totally like it's a read and run thing. It's not a it's not the thing we we used to do. Usually you climb up to ski it, then you can see uh, how the snow is and uh, where you have to go left, where you have to go right. And um, and to be honest, uh, I think uh, the trip, this trip in in Alaska, it was too fast. You know, it's not the same thing that like when you spend uh, two months in Nepal. It you know. It's it's a it's an heavier memory than being 15 days on on this glacier, but I'm a bit sad about it. That's super interesting. If you went back, would you want to stay longer, or if you could do this trip yeah. again, would you spend more time on the glacier? Yeah, spend more time on the glacier, spend uh, more time in uh, Tarkitna or uh, some do s- just some other t- stuff because. Uh, yeah, it was just this trip, like summit it to time, do that big ski descent, and then fly back home. And it's a bit sad to me uh, to have uh, to have this feeling because I, I think it's the it's my best it's my best ski descent that I've ever done for now. You think it's your best ski descent you've ever done? Yeah, in terms of uh, of complexity of uh, of uh, height of uh tech it, it it was really technique the ski was really technique and you skied over four thousand vertical meters too yes yeah and this is a uh, on on Nanga Parbat you also have this kind of height but that's it there is not much place in the world where you can find a such a such length of of ski when when you flew home and you get back to France, how does that feel? Does it feel like I want to repeat that descent? Does it feel like I want to recommend someone else go and repeat that descent? First of all, I felt like I wanted to stay uh, more and to do some other stuff. And I also like to, to go on uh, alpinism route. So I wish I, I could have done some uh, alpinism there. But next time, I guess. and. If I would recommend this uh, ski descent, yes, for sure, for sure. If you if you have a, it was not uh, the best condition that that you can have, but if you are able to wait a bit and maybe lucky enough to to have the right the the right snow condition for this, it's a must. Uh, yes, it's a must do. Well, Tiffen. Congratulations to you and Boris on yet another massively impressive ski descent, this time on the southwest face of Denali. Keep it up and have a wonderful and safe winter in the Alps and wherever the snow takes you. Thank you. You too. Be safe, everyone. Thanks to Tifan and Brody for sharing these stories. 
We'll link to several recent AAJ reports from TFEN at the Cutting Edge website. The photos are amazing. This is the final episode of the 2022 season for The Cutting Edge, and I want to thank our thousands of listeners, our guests, and our loyal sponsors for supporting the show this year. The Cutting Edge podcast is presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker, designer of comfortable and bomb-proof tents for all kinds of adventures. We get additional support from PolarTech, Gnarly Nutrition, and Loa Boots. I also want to thank Michael Levy for his interviews this year and Sierra McGivney for editing help. We'll be back with an all-new season of stories from the world of cutting-edge climbing starting in May. Until then, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you safe and happy climbs in the new year.